when I'm live. It says live, but until this blue line goes, it's not really live, at least not for me. Hey everybody, and welcome to Chef AJ Live. I'm your host, Chef AJ, and this is where I introduce you to amazing people like you who are doing great things in the world that I think you should know about. Today's guest has been on my radar for quite some time. I've heard a lot of her interviews on podcasts and on YouTube, and just the fact that she works with PCRM is enough for me to want her on the show. She's really had a recent article published that's very, very interesting that she's going to talk about, and she knows a lot about weight loss and food addiction because this is something she actually dealt with herself. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Vanita Raman. It's so nice to officially meet you. Oh, thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm a big fan. Well, thank you. So how, I'm just curious, how, how and when did you get involved with PCRM, which is pretty much my favorite nonprofit organization? Uh, aren't they amazing? I feel like PCRM and Dr. Barnard have been doing amazing work for so long, uh, made such a dent in our health policy and the health of so many others. So I started my official role with uh, the Physicians Committee about a year and a half ago. But prior to that, I had collaborated uh, with Dr. Bernard and others on some other projects. And then the time was just right for me to make the transition. That's great. How long have you been with them? So I started May of 2019. Well, so you're, so you're fairly new. I'm curious how your plant-based journey started, because I, I remember hearing your story about how you actually were overweight when you were younger. Yeah. You know, I, I was born in India and I lived there till I was 13 and I ate a vegetarian diet and I was a lean kid and I played. And then when I moved here at the age of 13, everything changed. I was drinking a lot of soda, a lot of juice, eating a lot of cookies, cupcakes. And I really wanted to fit in with other teenagers. So even though I was vegetarian, I would force myself to eat hot dogs and hamburgers because I felt like I was left out. I couldn't join in and I didn't really care for it, but I would make a good showing of liking it. And, you know, all that just had a profound impact on my health and I gained a lot of weight and I just couldn't lose it. And then just kept struggling with it. And eventually through a series of um, hits and misses with various diets, I was finally able to, um, uh, to get in touch with a good friend of mine from med school who told me to read this great book called The China Study. And well, that was the beginning of the end of my weight loss problems because that really changed how I took care of myself and how I practiced medicine. I think that more doctors came to this through through the China study, I think, than any other other way. So, you know, it's interesting because uh, who knows what it would have happened if you stayed in India. I, I don't remember which doctor said it, but he said, if you want to eat like other Americans, then you're going to be fat and sick like other Americans. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, although, you know, what's really sad is things are changing in India, too, now. Um you know, the Indian diet has become so westernized and people are eating much more dairy products, more meats and more soda. So I think it's not that different there now than it is here, um, but it's nothing like it used to be 30, 40 years ago. You know, it's interesting that so many people I meet that are, were born in India or are Indian, they, do, they, they shun the meat, but the dairy seems to be a very essential part of their diet, especially ghee. And, it, it, you know, it's very hard to convince them, just like it is anyone, that those are probably as unhealthy as meat. Yeah. You know, that's such an important point that you're raising because so many Indians are vegetarian and I was one of them. And... Um, they often think vegetarianism and veganism are synonymous, um, but there is, as we know, there's a huge difference. And a lot of Indians do incorporate dairy heavily into their diet, whether it's just milk or yogurt, or what you mentioned, ghee, which is a type of butter that's made from dairy milk. Um, and, and what's really sad is that the consumption of these products has just increased. It's skyrocketed in India to the point where now when I go to India, sometimes it's hard for me to find vegan foods because ghee and cheese and milk aren't just about everything. So, and if I ask the chef to exclude them, they kind of, they can't really understand why I would ask that because it's such a part of the culture. Um, and then I really have to explain why am I I'm avoiding it and they accommodate me, but it's a conversation we have to have. 
That's interesting. Well, maybe we need to make sure that the cheese trap in your body and balance gets translated to, to whatever language that they can read it in because that it's, I find that it's so many people that I know that want to be vegetarian for ethical reasons, which is wonderful, still include dairy. And it's like, no, if you're going to, I mean, I don't want anybody to eat any meat, but it's probably better to eat other meat than like dairy would be the first thing I would recommend people to get rid of. Wouldn't you? Yeah. You know, dairy is, um, I think, and unfortunately, dairy is one of the hardest for people to get rid of, as Dr. Barnard explains in his book, The Cheese Trap. It's um, cheese is so addictive and dairy food can be so addictive. So it can be really hard. But, you know, once people find alternatives to dairy, um, it's so easy. And I know I was one of those people. I couldn't understand how I would manage without yogurt, which is such a part of Indian cuisine. But then I found these great alternatives like almond yogurt and cashew yogurt. And I made my own soy yogurt. And I thought, well, this isn't so hard. Um, it was just a matter of um, knowledge and education about alternatives. Um, and then once we can do that, it's so much easier. So even though you had some weight problems, you haven't had them in, in years, right? It's like you literally changed your diet and they were gone. You know, that's really what it feels like. It's now been over eight years and I... I'm always amazed that I'm no longer yo-yoing. I'm no longer measuring my food or counting calories or seeing what I'm eating. And I'm not going from South Beach to low carb um, to portion control. I just eat these healthy foods and I enjoy them and I stay fit and healthy. And it's not a struggle like it used to be. I know. And that that that's pretty typical from the people that I know. So, but, but you, did you learn something about certain components of the standard American diet once you started eating about how that some of the foods seem to have a very addictive like property? Yeah, you know, I would say all of it. Um, so the foods that are really addict, I mean, the ingredients that are really addictive in food are salt, sugar and fat. And if we think about it, you know, meat like red meat or poultry, it's about 50% fat. So that's a lot of fat. Um, and then if we even think about seafood, it tends to be 30 to 50% fat, depending on what someone's eating um, for fish. And then dairy, uh, cheese is about 70, 80% fat. It, and, and then cheese is loaded with sodium and loaded with salt. So all that, that salty, fatty taste is what makes it so addictive. You know, it's so interesting when people say, well, I can't be vegan. Where will I get my protein? They don't realize that what they're really eating is fat just as much, if not more than the protein. Yeah, I, I love that. Where do I get my protein question? Because now I just want to ask people, well, let me tell you about protein, but I'm more concerned about where are you getting your fiber? Let's talk about that. Because um, in the standard American diet, there's so little fiber. And that's sort of gone below the radar for so many people. And I think with weight loss, fiber is really the secret. Because all the foods that we eat are so high in fiber. Absolutely. Uh, you know, one of one of the things that I love is when I'm seeing patients and so many of them have been struggling with constipation or irregularity, and then they go on a plant-based diet and they feel great, you know, and they didn't realize it was just the fiber in the diet. So um, it's something that we may be taking for granted as we eat a plant-based diet, but for so many people, they're not aware um, how important it is and what an impact it can have on their health. One of my favorite t-shirts I got when I was speaking at the PCRM annual conference and it says fiber is the new protein. I love that. I love it's that. my favorite. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. So do you see patients in person at the Barnard Medical Center? Do you do telemedicine? Do you do both? Yeah, we do both. So uh, before COVID uh, pandemic started, we were seeing mostly people in person, but we had started to explore telehealth for patients out of convenience and then um, reaching out to people out of state. And then once the pandemic started, we started seeing more and more people through telehealth, our patients felt safer and we realized it's better for our staff too. And now we do a combination. So it's really wonderful. Um, you know, there are so few silver linings in this pandemic, but I think one of the few that we have seen is we are able to practice telehealth and provide care to so many people outside the state. Nice. And do you, do they have to live in Washington, D.C. to do the telehealth option? No, not at all. So I'm actually licensed. I'm losing track, but I think in 11 states. So um, 
you know, when I see patients that are all over the country, and one of the first things I like to ask is, where are you located? So I have an idea because they could be anywhere, really. Um, with technology, it's never been more uh, convenient. And, and patients really like it. They don't have to leave home. They're comfortable and they feel safe. And we can do 90% of visits through telehealth, but for some things, they do need to be seen. Nice. Amanda says, how did Dr. Raman end up working with PCRM and Barnard Medical Center? And the paper? <laughs> yeah, so I have been, a, my good friend, Michael, who told me to read the China study, also told me to attend um, the Physicians Committee's International Conference on Nutrition and Medicine. And at that time, um, you know, I felt like I was on an island by myself. Um, practicing plant-based medicine. And then I got there and I saw hundreds of healthcare providers and experts with the same passion and dedication. And, um, and that's sort of how my journey into the Physicians Committee started. And I've been going to that conference every year and it's one of the things that I love. And then in time, um, I collaborated with Dr. Barnard and the research team. And then, um, and then there was just a good time for me to transition. And then I, I did and I, I just love it. Such a wonderful place. And I love the work that we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. And Angela says that she wants you to know that she loves PCRM's COVID-19 food course and to thank you for that. Oh, oh, thank you, Angela. I'm so glad you could be a part of it. That's neat. Uh, okay. And uh, the question from Tracy is, does the Barnard Medical Center take insurance for either the in-person appointments or the telemedicine appointments? We do. In fact, we accept most uh, commercial insurance plans. We also accept some um, Medicaid plans. So if you call our clinic, our front office staff can talk you through your options with your insurance and what's covered and what isn't. But we do accept most private insurance. Right. So Elaine says, any thoughts on a plant-based, no junk food, vegan with GERD? I don't want to take the meds the doctors want to put me on. Yeah, so GERD, um, for people who may not be familiar, is also known as heartburn. That's where um, in our stomach we produce acids that help us digest our food. And with GERD, sometimes that acid, instead of staying in the stomach, it comes up into the esophagus. And when it does, um, it causes a burning discomfort in our, our chest. Um, people call that heartburn. It's also known as gastroesophageal reflux disease. And one thing we know is that when people go plant-based, they actually improve their GERD symptoms. They feel better. Um, and then if you're still experiencing GERD, one of the things you can do is make sure that um, you don't uh, lay down after eating, you stay upright for at least three, four hours. And even the head of your bed, if you're having persistent symptoms at night, elevating the head of your bed, and that doesn't mean adding more pillows, but this is a little bit painful, but it works better is actually putting some blocks under the posts under the head of your bed and lifting the bed. So it's a bit diagonal, works much better than just elevating with pillows. Nice. Let's see, oh, you tell us about you, you, you sent me an article you wrote in a publication called stat and it, it had a real at the I have it pulled up here and I'll share it in the show notes, the title about making America healthy again. And I had to laugh because as often happens with things, there's sometimes advertisement, right, on websites, and all the ads were, have you tried Dunkin' Donuts today? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that's really too funny. Um, so this is a, a, a piece that I co-authored um, with a good friend of mine, and it's really about make America healthy again with food. Um, and we were talking about, you know, there was so much debate going on in the presidential election about the Affordable Care Act and what to do with it. And we felt that the thing that was really getting lost in it all was the health of the American people. Um, and unfortunately, we spend, um, we have one of the highest rates of per capita spending on healthcare um, than any other developed country, but we have one of the poorest outcomes to show for it. Um, and that has a lot to do with our diet, the way we eat, our lifestyle. And the case we're making is, you know, really encouraging Americans to eat more fruits, vegetables, cutting back on the fats, cutting back on the meats, the dairy, the seafood is key in making us healthy again. Absolutely. Yeah, I have the, I, I just posted the link to the article in the chat and I'll also put it in the show notes if people want to read it. 
when people go to the Barnard Medical Center, whether it's in person or for a telemedicine appointment, is it just primary care physicians or do you actually sometimes maybe have specialists that they can see? Yeah, so there are four of us who work at the Barnard Medical Center and we are all primary care physicians. And um, if we feel that our patients need to have specialty care, then we will refer them to a specialist. And we have a network of specialists that we'll refer them to. And sometimes they prefer to see plant-based specialists and we'll try to connect them with that if we can. Um, but we are a primary care office. Right. And, but can, people can also see a dietitian too, can't they, in your practice? Yes, and, and I love that. I'm so glad you brought that up. We have three wonderful di registered dietitians and they're excellent and um, very knowledgeable about plant-based nutrition. And um, our patients can do virtual consultations with them through telehealth. So they don't have to come in, they can do it all virtually. And the other thing we also offer is a diabetes self-management education program, which is a group-based program that people with diabetes can do and they meet as a group every week for about six weeks. And it's really empowering um, to learn how to lower uh, blood sugar values through dietary changes. And just doing it with others makes it that much more um, important and that support is crucial there. Well, there's a few people that are watching live that actually have upcoming appointments with you and they're very excited about that. Oh, great. Yeah. Let's see. Wow. In this article, you said that nearly half of all deaths in the United States from heart disease, stroke, and type 2 diabetes are associated with diet, such as the overconsumption of processed meat and sugar-sweetened beverages and insufficient intake of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Yeah, you know, this, this is just a remarkable um, study. This was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association a few years back. Um, it's from a research team at Tufts and it's um, what they had discovered was that in the year 2012, nearly 50% of deaths in adults that were from diabetes, heart disease, or stroke could were associated with a suboptimal diet, a suboptimal diet defined as a diet low in fruits, low in vegetables, low in fiber, low in legumes, low in whole grains, but high in fat, high in sodium high in processed meat, high in sugar. So that just speaks to the power of how important nutrition is. And, you know, um, we could prevent this and we can still prevent this going forward. So we can learn from this study and learn that really changing our diet can have such a profound impact on our health trajectory. Yeah. And, and you also say in the article that even younger people with obesity are suffering poorer outcomes with COVID-19, including death. Why do people think that is? Because I've heard that so many from so many of the doctors. Yeah, so, you know, uh, what's really interesting um, is we have known for decades that obesity is associated with worse health outcomes. Um, obesity leads to a higher risk of diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiovascular disease, cancer. Um, but most of those conditions would develop over years to decades. So the impact wasn't immediate. What we're seeing with COVID-19 is that the impact of obesity is immediate, that people who are obese have a higher risk of death and complications from COVID-19. And this has borne out in several studies, one from Kaiser Permanente in California, another one um, from NYU. And we're seeing the same pattern that younger people who are obese, morbidly obese, are much likely to have adverse outcomes. Uh, now, what's really important to point out is that this is not unique to just COVID-19. We have known this about seasonal influenza, which we have in, uh, which we struggle with every year. And we see the same pattern there that obesity increases the risk for complications. So um, why is it that obesity does that? We don't know. Is it through secondary conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, possibly? Or is it because obesity itself compromises the immune system? So an active area of research, we haven't quite gotten to the bottom of that yet, but we clearly see a trend there. Thank you. So here's, uh, well, we just so you know, every almost every guest that comes on this show gets this question, but Andrea says, what, is doc, what does Dr. Raman eat in a day and what is she having for Christmas? Oh, well, 
And let me share with you what I eat in a day and then Christmas. You're asking me something I love to talk about, which is food. Um, so a typical breakfast for me could be a whole grain waffle with a cup full of berries. And then lunch might be um, a black bean quesadilla with a side of salsa. And then an afternoon snack is um, a cup of soy milk latte with one of my favorite desserts, chocolate, banana, nice cream, which I just love. And then dinner could be like a Buddha bowl with quinoa, sweet potatoes and kale with a cilantro dressing. So that that is pretty close to what I'm eating today, actually. Um, and then for Christmas, I'm planning something that I know most of my family likes. So we're planning a Greek salad and we're going to have a veggie lasagna. And then um, I discovered this wonderful recipe on the Physicians Committee's website for a pumpkin pie, which was a great hit at Thanksgiving in my family. We're gonna have the pumpkin pie with banana and ice cream. And, um, and then we'll pair that with coffee or tea. So that I'm really looking forward to that Christmas meal this year. Does your family, that sounds delicious by the way, does your family eat the same way as you? They do, yes. Um, so I feel very fortunate that um, my whole family's eating plant-based and we've been on this journey together. So we all love to tinker with the recipes and share our favorite ones with each other. How old are your kids, if I may ask? Yeah, so uh, I have twins and my kids just turned 17 um, last week. So, um, and they they have been plant-based with us for a number of years now. And it's really fun watching them and the, the things they like and the recipes they uh, tinker with is just wonderful. That's great. So it wasn't difficult to transition them because I hear from so many parents, oh, they, they can't give up the macaroni and cheese. Uh, well, I think it was a bit challenging at first. Um, you know, my kids were about nine when we started our plant-based journey. And um, they, and what I discovered very quickly is kids don't really care about health issues. They're generally healthy and diabetes, heart disease, that's not on their radar. Um, but my kids, like most kids, just adored animals and they still do. And so I approached them from an ethical point of view. And I said, you know, you can eat whatever you want, but you should know how it gets to your plate. And so I really sat down with them and watched Food Inc. And within five minutes of that movie, they they knew that they didn't want to eat that way anymore. And um, but I have to say dairy was a little bit harder for them just because of birthday parties and pizzas and cupcakes. And uh, what really happened was in time, they just transitioned on their own. They discovered so many dairy free options that they liked. And as they got older, um, their friends showed a great interest in learning about vegan alternatives. So they were much more receptive. And then one day I realized they really didn't want dairy anymore. And um, they came to that on their own, which was wonderful. And they've been that way since then. That's terrific. Did they ever have any weight issues? No, they, uh, you know, in fact, they really benefited from going plant-based. Um, whenever we see our pediatrician, she always remarks on their clear skin because with teenagers, that's always such an issue. Acne is so common. And one of the things we learn is that, um, you know, when kids eat or teenagers eat a plant-based diet, they need not suffer from acne. And, um, you know, they've noticed a visible difference in their health. So they're very grateful for it. That, that's wonderful. Are they going to follow in the family footsteps? Uh, of eating plant-based or? Well, of being a doctor. <laughs> oh, oh, I don't know about that. They're still exploring their career choices. So to be determined. Okay, terrific. Angela asks, does Dr. Christy Funk work with PCRM and do telemedicine appointments? So Dr. Funk um, does collaborate with us on public service announcements on certain projects, but she does not see patients uh, with our clinic. She has her own clinic where she sees patients. So if you are concerned about breast health, you would want to reach out directly to her office. She's been on the show and she's coming back soon. So thank you. Mandy says, what is Dr. Raman's favorite thing about being a doctor? Oh gosh, uh, where to start? Um, I think for me, probably the most gratifying is when I see a patient uh, and they have literally reversed their health um, just by changing their lifestyle. Uh, so when I see a patient who has reversed his diabetes within three months or lowered their blood pressure or dropped their cholesterol 100 points, 
or they just feel better. They feel like themselves again. To me, that's just the most gratifying thing that um, it just goes to show that with the right food, with some education and support, people can have such a difference in their health. Yeah, it must be very rewarding. Susan says, what is the recommended amount of protein and fiber we should take? Okay, so let's talk about both of these, really important. So for protein, although there's often a concern about us not getting enough protein, we know that most of us get way more protein than we need, especially when we're eating a non-plant-based diet. But what we need is about 10 to 15% of our calories to come from protein, and that's it. Uh, and we can easily get that on a plant-based diet. So the rule of thumb I like to give people is fruits are pretty low in protein, about 5% or less, but whole grains are about 10%, vegetables are about 10%. And then when you're talking about legumes like beans, lentils, or soybeans, that's when it really picks up. It can be anywhere from 25 to 50% of the calories from protein. So plenty of protein in a plant-based diet. And then as far as fiber, most of us should be getting at least 36 to 40 grams of fiber a day, if not more. And again, if you're eating um, fruits, vegetables, legumes, and whole grains, you'll get plenty of fiber in your diet because they're just loaded with them. I heard something like 97% of Americans don't get enough fiber. Yeah, sadly true. Uh, most people are just not getting enough and we really need to bump those numbers up. You know, you had mentioned in the article you wrote that something like only 1% of the medical school hours are devoted to nutrition and medical school is like four years and 1%, what's that like an hour? It's really very little. Uh, you know, it's, I think the number is close to maybe 17 hours of medical school education, which at first really surprised me, but it's actually uh, less than 1% of our education time. And, and what's important to know is that most of that time is not even really about the food on our plate. It's about complex biochemistry, the structure of amino acids or carbohydrates, which while that's important for us to know, it doesn't help us help our patients change their diet on a practical level. So we need to really change things in how we educate future doctors. How, how do we go about that? I mean, because it should be a no brainer, especially in certain specialties like GI. And we have somebody watching me saying, oh, my GI doctor said, what, what we eat has nothing to do with the, the state of our colon. And it's like, really? Yeah. Well, you know, this is a really complex question and um, it's going to need a multi-pronged approach. So for example, what we do with the physicians committee, having the annual conference every year where we educate healthcare providers, they come for two or three days and they learn about the science and the research. It's so important because then when you have a thousand providers attending that conference, they're now taking it to thousands of their patients and to hundreds of their colleagues and educating them. So educating the healthcare providers is number one. That can be done through national conferences. It can be done through free online CME, which we also provide but then really also working with medical residents and medical students directly. And we actually do that. That's something we do at the Barnard Medical Center is we precept medical students and residents and they come from all over the country. Many come internationally because they really want to learn. So there is a shift, it is happening. More and more educators are recognizing the need. We're not where we need to be obviously, but we will get there with time. I know the PCRM does a lot of wonderful research. I'm actually going to be interviewing Dr. Hannah Kaliova soon. Are you involved in any of that? And how, how do you guys do that? I mean, that's so great what you guys are producing. Yeah, yeah. And Dr. Kaliova is the director of clinical research. She does amazing work. She's just published some recent research that's very exciting. But um, I, I also am involved with research. And we were actually in the middle of a weight loss research study that we were doing at the physicians committee. And then we had to halt that temporarily because of the COVID pandemic, because it did involve people coming into the clinic to do DEXA scans and blood testing. So, but we are hoping as things settle down with the vaccine and um, things feel safer, we are hoping to resume that in the summer or spring of uh, 2021, depending on how things go. But yeah, research is key to all of this because with research, we can really show um, something that we have known and others have known and then really apply it on a practical level so that more healthcare providers can help their patients. 
That's great. There's a question at your dietitians at PCRM that do the telemedicine appointments. Are they familiar with kidney failure? Can they work with somebody with that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, to some extent. Um, now, if someone does have kidney failure, my recommendation would be it's, it would be helpful to meet with one of our dietitians that can help you with your diet. But it would also be helpful to work with a plant-based nephrologist. And uh, working with someone like that would be crucial because kidney um, disease warrants some special consideration about protein intake, um, about other electrolytes. So I would work with both a plant-based dietitian and a plant-based nephrologist for that. You know, a good plant-based nephrologist. I know Dr. Sean Hashmi, but he's 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 Kaiser, so it'd be Kaiser to see him. Yeah, so actually we recently had Dr. Shivam Joshi from NYU speak at our um, conference this year. And um, so some people could certainly schedule appointments with him or reach out to him. He is in New York City. I don't know what kind of telehealth or out of state privileges he has, but that could be something worth exploring. And there are others. So it would be important to, um, you can do a search and we actually have a website, plantbaseddoctors.org where people can go in and look at plant-based um, physicians and find a specialist close to their zip code that they could reach out to. That's wonderful, thank you. Elaine says, I have GERD all day long, not just at night. How about natural remedies such as apple cider vinegar before meals, question mark? Yeah, so Elaine, you know, I would say try it if it helps you. Uh, the issue with many of the natural remedies or herbs or supplements is we just don't know. We don't have enough research to tell us um, simply because they haven't been studied. Um, but having said that, apple cider vinegar is um, harmless. It's inexpensive. And if it's something that you don't mind sipping or uh, consuming, then try it and see if that helps you. Uh, but also perhaps reducing the fat in the food and then avoiding certain foods that may trigger your heartburn. So everyone's a little bit different and then avoiding those foods would be key as well. Great. Does Dr. Raman have any vegan sweet treats for the holidays like cakes, cookies, or pies? You did mention a pumpkin pie. Yeah, so many. Um, I love, you know, uh, you could, well, I don't know where to begin, honestly, but if you go on our website, on PCRM's website, we have over 200 recipes, including desserts. So you can look, some of my favorites are the French toast recipe there. I love the pumpkin pie. There's a chocolate mousse recipe that I really like. Um, and then I love banana and ice cream um, made many different ways. You can also do low fat chocolate chip cookies, um, you know, baked donuts. Um, so there's really no limit. The key is to always just really minimize the added fat and sugar and try to keep it as whole grain as possible. So that way we are enjoying our dessert while still nourishing our bodies. Terrific. Judy wants to know, can osteoporosis actually be reversed? Yeah, so Judy, this is uh, a really complex area of research right now. So for people who may not know, osteoporosis is a condition where the bones uh, become thin, their density decreases. It uh, is most common in women after menopause because the levels of estrogen go down, but it can happen in other conditions too if someone has um, had premature menopause or if someone's been taking steroids like prednisone uh, for a number of years or someone has rheumatoid arthritis. And the risk with osteoporosis is as the bones become brittle, they lose their bone density, they're more likely to fracture. Now, what we know is that eating um, a plant-based diet is important, getting enough calcium, vitamin D is important, but can we reverse it? We simply don't know. The only studies we have so far are from pharmaceutical agents like bisphosphonates, where there is some increase in bone density but we don't know what that means in terms of fracture per se. And we don't know what that means long-term. Most of these medications are taken up to five years. We don't know what happens after that. So th there's such a need to answer this question um, and there's ongoing research. So we will know with time, but right now we don't know enough to say. Right, thank you. Katie wants to know, will the PCRM Food for Life instructors ever meet again in person or will the program ever be available virtually for people to become PCRM cooking instructors? 
Oh, to train. Uh, well, you know what? I know we are looking at that, but I think um, uh, we're exploring all options. That's such a wonderful program. And there, uh, you know, we'll let you know as soon as we know something and look for updates from us. Um, if you don't get the emails, maybe subscribe to that and we'll be reaching out. Great. Here's a question on vitamin D. Uh, Sharon says, is vitamin K necessary for vitamin D to be effective? I already take 2000 international units of D3 daily. Yeah. So uh, this whole issue with calcium, vitamin D, bone health, vitamin K, again, a lot of active research going on. We don't have it all quite sorted out yet. For vitamin D, Ideally, we can produce all the vitamin D we need just with sun exposure, but for reasons that aren't clear, many of us aren't doing that. So some people will need to supplement. You can, uh, I would recommend working with your healthcare provider. They can check your vitamin D levels and help you dose your medication, whether vitamin K is necessary or not. We don't know. There's some evidence that can help, but again, more to be researched um, with time here. Great. So, okay, this is, I, I try not to be real controversial on this show because I just, that's just not what I want to do. So if you don't want to answer this question, if it's too personal, you don't have to answer it because, you know, we're getting into COVID territory now, which is like, ugh, it's not what I want this show to be about. But hold on, it just, my thing just flipped up about about the, I, my, I apologize, but my screen, I, because I'm streaming this to like seven places, it goes really, really fast. And so, okay. So if you don't want to answer, it's okay. I'll, I'll do, I'll read both questions and you can either choose to answer or take the fifth. No problem. Either way. Andrea <laughs> says, what does Dr. Raman think about the coronavirus vaccine? Is she going to take it? And Jesse says, can you ask Dr. Raman if she and her colleagues have any special access to information about COVID that the general public does not have? And if there is a doc in your group that specializes in COVID? Yeah. So, um, you know, let me start with the second one first. Uh, the information that we have in our group is the same that all healthcare providers have. We are depending on the CDC um, and we're looking at medical research that's being published on an almost daily basis to monitor the situation and the evidence. So we don't have any inside information any more than anyone else. Um, and I don't know if anyone does really. Um, this is all new, it's all unprecedented and most healthcare providers are really doing the best they can based on research that's coming in at a very rapid rate. Uh, as far as the vaccine goes, all the evidence that we have appears to indicate that it's effective, that it's safe, and that it will be recommended for healthcare providers. So we don't know when it'll be available to our practice. Um, I know it's being rolled out based on needs. Um, so when it is available, I, I do plan to take it because I think that, um, you know, we know that COVID can be a serious disease. It's important to mitigate our risk. And we have, uh, research data showing it's safe. So I, I believe in its safety. Great. And you don't have to answer if you're going to take it. So you don't, that's like personal, but there's another personal question. If, is Dr. Raman also an ethical vegan? Yeah. So uh, absolutely. You know, I think it's uh, veganism has so many benefits. Um, it's not, not only important for our health, it's important for the health of the animals that inhabit this planet with us and we can't ignore their health. Um, they are so helpless because we have more power than they do in this situation. And um, the other aspect of this is it's better for the environment. We have so much evidence that eating a plant-based diet will slow down climate change. It will reduce gas emissions. So it's really a win-win. It's a win-win for our health, for the health of our uh, fellow animals and for our planet. So uh, there's really no drawback to doing this. Absolutely. Well, with a lot of nice comments about you, I don't know if you can see them, how beautiful you are, how smart you are. And uh, this is nice. Uh, Gina says, Dr. Raman's mind is so flexible. She goes from food to health to science with only one breath in between. So, <laughs> and, and, and we didn't we didn't go over any of the questions. We're just taking them live. All I did was read the article. So here's a question. As a, as a whole food plant-based SOS-free owner of a Montana wheat ranch, I sprout the grain, then make it into flour. My question is just what fraction of one's diet should be grain-based? It's funny because there's, you know, people that think we shouldn't eat any grains you know, like wheat belly and grain brain, and they think we should eat lots of meat and fat. Right. So um, 
you know, let's take a step back from this. And if we base this on research that Dr. Ornish did or that Dr. Esselstyn did or that Dr. Kaliova and Dr. Bernard have done, uh, what we know is that uh, a low fat plant-based diet is the way to go. And what that means is we get 85%, uh, I'm sorry, 75% of our calories from uh, carbohydrates and we get 10 to 15% from protein and about 10% from fat. So um, grains are one source of carbohydrates, but so are fruits, so are legumes, so are vegetables. And, uh, you know, to really pin it down and say what percentage of our calories should come from grains, I don't know if we can pin it down to an exact number, but I do recommend trying to get three to four servings of whole grains a day. Uh, and so what are whole grains? They're sprouted grains, like what um, was just mentioned in the question and brown rice, uh, wild rice, uh, buckwheat, quinoa, oats, um, whole wheat pasta, whole wheat bread. These are all whole grains that are good for us as opposed to white bread or white rice. Now, uh, the reason I think grains are important is when we look at the research, like the study that we talked about earlier about the 50% mortality, 50% uh, of the deaths in 2012, were due to us or were associated with a suboptimal diet. One of the ingredients of a suboptimal diet was not eating enough whole grains. So whole grains are important, but I think we don't need to force it. You know, if one day you feel like having more, that's fine. Another day, maybe you'll have less. So just try to get a wide variety of vegetables, fruits, grains, and legumes, and you're going to get all the nutrients you need that way. It's just it's, so many people are afraid to eat rice now because of arsenic. And even people that aren't afraid to eat rice are afraid to eat white rice. It's, it's just crazy. Yeah. Well, and, and there is real concern about arsenic. And, um, you know, uh, the rice is just a grain that absorbs it more easily. So one way around that is to eat uh, rice imported from India or Pakistan um, or uh, rice from California is lower in arsenic than say rice grown in Texas. And that just has to do with the farming of it. So we can lower it, but you don't have to eat rice. There are plenty of other grains you can enjoy, but if you like it, uh, a little bit of rice is probably okay. Absolutely. And it's too bad because my favorite rice was the one grown in Texas. It was called Texmati, but I switched to the, the one that that other doctors are recommending the California grown or the ones from India. So we have somebody watching live, Deb, who says that her osteoporosis had reversed to osteopenia from transitioning to a plant-based diet. Oh, terrific. Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, let me just add one more thing about that to osteoporosis. In addition to diet, weight-bearing exercise is so important. So weight-bearing is whenever our skeleton is supporting weight. So for example, when we're walking or jogging, um, that's weight-bearing exercise. Our skeleton is supporting our own body weight as opposed to biking or swimming, which are great exercises, but they're not weight-bearing. Um, similarly, strength training or Pilates can be great weight-bearing exercises. So um, it's wonderful that you were able to reverse it um, from osteoporosis to osteopenia. And for others who may have osteopenia or osteoporosis, eating plant-based and that weight-bearing exercise can be key. One of the things I thought really interesting in your article when you talked about how 20 cents of every snap dollar was used to buy basically junk food, sugar sweetened beverages, candy. And I remember I, a long, not a long time ago, but within the last 10 years, there was a guy named Chris Voigt who headed up the Washington Potato Commission. And at, at one point, they weren't going to let people with food stamps buy potatoes, but they could buy junk. And he went on an all potato diet and, of course, lost weight and reversed all his diseases. It, 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 don't you think they should? you were saying maybe have incentives, but why are they allowed to use government money to buy crap? It doesn't seem like that. That's like, well, why don't we just let them buy cigarettes and alcohol then, you know? Right. And you know, you're raising such a great point. This is one of the big tragedies of the SNAP program, which is a food assistance program that's meant to help uh, lower income families. So it, it's meant to help others, but unfortunately it sometimes end up, ends up causing more harm because it, while SNAP prohibits people from buying alcohol or tobacco or medications, it places no limits on the types of foods that people can buy. So, I mean, just imagine, um, you know, if we could instead have programs that would incentivize SNAP recipients to buy healthier foods. So incentivize them to buy fruits, vegetables, legumes, whole grains, and then 
disinc uh, you know, create um, disincentives to buy junkier food like processed meats, sugar sweetened beverages, potato chips that would go such a long way in improving the health of many people. Um, and it's the, you know, it's a point that many have argued for. Uh, unfortunately, it hasn't led to policy change, but it's one that we desperately need. Or maybe they get more money if they buy fruits and vegetables than if they buy junk. And, you know, I've, I've had doctors on who talked about how there is such a disparity and it's not fair. And, and I do agree with that. However, I've, I've done a lot of volunteer work in food deserts and in, you know, places with, with lower incomes. And what I found is that while it's true that maybe that's all they can afford or have available to them when you offer them healthy food at first, they really don't like it. Like, and I think it's because that food that they've been eating for whatever reason is just so addictive. Absolutely. You know, that really gets back to the addictive properties of food. If, you know, if you're used to eating, um, if someone is used to eating cookies, um, well, let's face it, uh, you know, a banana is just not going to taste as good initially. Um, a banana can't compete with a cookie. But if we stop eating that cookie, then that banana starts to taste better and better. Our taste buds change. So initially, there can be some resistance. But, you know, I should also point out that there's been research showing that with the SNAP program, at least, that recipients are supportive of making these changes about if they are um, given discounts on healthier foods and then less healthy foods cost more, they are supportive of that. Um, they see the value in that. So it's really a policy change that we need to make happen. But most people do recognize that you know, eating fruits and vegetables will be much healthier for them than potato chips or um, deli meat or sugar-sweetened beverages. The problem is all the crops that produce the unhealthy food are subsidized and, and you know, fruits and vegetables just are more expensive. You can get like 2000 calories for a couple of bucks. Right, yeah, oh, and, and, and that is part, that is true. Um, you know, the other thing that, and there's so many changes that could happen with the SNAP program, uh, vendors, um, if we stop reimbursing vendors for unhealthy foods, they will simply stop carrying them. So where we have these food deserts, if, if these vendors know that, hey, you know, potato chips and cookies and sodas um, and, and beef jerky will not be covered, well, then they're not going to carry that and they'll carry healthier food. So in this case, um, supply and demand are so linked together and we could make a change at a policy level that would really help so many people. Yeah. And if people stop buying them, then they're going to have to make something else. You know, I wonder, and I don't want to shame people, but it's, it's sort of like, you know, when, when it, smoking was no longer allowed in buildings, a lot of people quit smoking just because it was really inconvenient, like, you know, to take the elevator down on your 15 minute break and smoke. And so uh, Dr. Lyle talks about this. It wasn't, you know, it's just, it got too inconvenient to smoke. So a lot of people quit. And what if that was like processed food? Like if we had these separate areas, like, like in this, like, well, you're going to eat that. You got to go over here and eat it there. You can't eat it around all the healthy people. I wonder if that would make a difference. Yeah, I, I do. You know, uh, you're bringing, bringing up such a good point about smoking um, as we restricted smoking. You know, remember when I came to this country, smoking was allowed on airplanes. Um, my first summer job, my boss used to smoke sitting across from me. That was completely normal. And we can't even imagine that nowadays, which is great. Um, but similarly, if, people are consuming how they're consuming whatever's available to them. So if we just don't provide unhealthy foods and we provide healthy foods then that's what people will consume. So we can help them make changes um, just by changing the supply of food too. What about, you know, and this, I'm going to, people are going to get upset about this because I'm an ethical vegan too. I've been vegan for 43 years. And for the first 26 years, that's all I was, was an ethical vegan because I was obese and had the beginning of cancer, but there was no vegan junk food when I started. And now, you know, beyond me, I mean, I don't even know any, there's so many names. And from what I understand, it's not really that much healthier than other junk food. Yeah. So I, this is an important point. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the vegan junk food out there and there's so much, you know, um, the, the fake meats or the fake cheeses or the vegan ice creams or the vegan desserts. Um, so a couple of points about that. So those foods are healthier for the planet. They are healthier for the animals, but in terms of our health, they mean there is some benefit in that they are cholesterol free. They may not have the same types of carcinogens that animal foods have. 
However, um, they do tend to be high in fat. They do tend to be high in added sugar. They do tend to be low in fiber. So their nutrient profile isn't the greatest. So it's best to just use them as a transition food and then to move along to healthier foods. So if you're going from a beef burger to a, um, uh, you know, like a Beyond or Impossible burger, and then you can move from that to maybe a black bean burger, um, you're moving yourself further along the healthier spectrum. So really use them to transition um, or an occasional treat is how I would use them. That's great. Elmo says she is a blessing to her profession and to humanity. I saw a question about peripheral neuropathy. Uh, why can't I find, I think it was about, are there any foods people can eat to reverse it? Sorry, I'm gonna keep looking for it. Yeah, so peripheral neuropathy is, uh, a condition where we, you know, we have nerves all over our body. And so these nerves, especially the ends of the nerves, um, um, become irritated or activated unnaturally. And so then this is most common in diabetes and people would develop tingling or a burning sensation or pain, or just something doesn't feel right. And, um, what role diet can play? We don't know yet. This is again, um, something we don't have enough research on, but, we do know that um, controlling blood sugars, um, controlling diabetes prevents the progression. So if we can help people reverse their diabetes, help them manage their blood sugars better, that will go a long way in reducing their risk of neuropathy. And, um, and we may start to see reversal. We just don't have that data yet. Great, thanks. Susan says, my husband was born with one kidney. He was raised in South, Indian as a, South India as a vegetarian and we have been whole food plant-based, no oil for eight years. Should he be concerned about too much protein intake? Thank you. Yeah, so I, no, I don't think so. Uh, with a the, with the plant-based diet, you know, we do get sufficient protein, but we are not likely to get too much, um, which is the case with uh, non-plant-based foods. So for example, meats uh, and poultry, you know, they can be 30 to 50% protein, uh, fish, the same thing, eggs, the same thing. And then dairy, depending on what you're eating, it can be about 50 to 80% protein, uh, sometimes less with cheese. So generally no, but um, if he does have one kidney, I would just follow closely with his doctor, monitor his kidney function regularly. They can look for protein in the urine. Um, but usually people do with a single kidney will do just fine without any problems. Great. Thank you. Let's see. Looking for wish this didn't go so fast. Okay. Oh, okay. Uh, I don't know if you, well, you're, you, you know, this is kind of asking for medical advice, but maybe you can just talk generally about this from Dina. My doctor wants me to start on a low dose aspirin every other day. And in three months begin low dose statins. Are these medicines safe and are the, or are the side effects worse? Why don't you book appointment with Dr. Raman and uh, you can, can, can people be in other countries? Cause I know Dina's in Canada. Yeah, so we have been exploring the medical legal aspects of that. We're still sorting that out. But for right now, our visits are limited to um, patients within the U.S. Uh, but to answer your question, Dina, so um, aspirin and statins are prescribed to prevent cardiovascular events such as heart disease or a stroke or a heart attack. Now, any medication um, has side effects associated with it. So with aspirin, the side effects could be bleeding, stomach upset, um, and the benefit would be prevention of these events. Similarly with statins, the benefit is the prevention of events. And we know that statins reduce the risk by about 30%, but there is the risk that they come with muscle aches, pains, they can increase blood sugar levels. So uh, what I really recommend is having a very frank conversation with your healthcare provider about what are your risks, what are the benefits to you, and where do you fall? There's no hard and fast rule about this. It's really about finding what you feel most comfortable with. So we've kind of moved away from making sort of these blanket recommendations about you should take an aspirin or you should take a statin to really talking each person's risk is different. So we evaluate your risk. And then these medications, again, are one way to reduce that risk. There are other ways such as eating a healthy diet, maintaining a healthy weight, exercising regularly. So having a very candid discussion with your healthcare provider would be key about this. 
Thank you. Melanie says, does Dr. Raman think probiotics will help a teenager who has just gone plant-based, who is still struggling with constipation? Oh, I wish Melanie, you had watched the GI Health Summit because we ever, all, each of the 40 presenters pretty much talked about constipation. What, what do you say about constipation if they're already on a plant-based diet? Yeah, so if they're on a plant-based diet, I, I would um, really make sure that they're eating the healthy plant-based diet, the low-fat plant-based diet, so getting lots of whole grains. Sometimes um, people can be on a plant-based diet, but they may be consuming refined grains like white rice or white pasta, which won't have as much fiber as the whole grains. And then making sure they're getting you know, three to five fruits a day, three to five vegetables a day, three to five whole grains a day, and then making sure they're getting enough water. Sometimes as people increase their fiber intake, they just need to bump up their water intake a little bit more. And, and with that, they should find their constipation easing. Usually when you're getting sufficient fiber, constipation is not an issue, but if it continues to be one, despite a good diet, it might be worthwhile to speak with a plant-based dietitian or have a consultation with a plant-based gastroenterologist to see if there's something else that could be going on that needs to be looked at. Right. And that's why you got to, that's what we so need about the GI Health Summit because there's so many different causes. And, you know, one of the things I say, get a squatty potty. That is a game changer. Let me tell you. And that's basically side effect free. Um, Tracy's saying, I don't know how you're constipated on a whole food plant-based diet. I want to stop going. So, uh, and she also says, how would Dr. Raman check somebody with high blood pressure on a telemedicine appointment and get them to lower it? Yeah. So um, a good question. What we do is uh, we ask them to purchase a blood pressure monitor. And then I will ask my patients to keep a log and they'll keep it. And then when we get on our telehealth visit, we'll go through it. And there's a lot of scientific evidence that blood pressures at home are much more accurate than the readings we get in the clinic. You know, if you imagine a typical patient coming into a clinic, they've been battling traffic, looking for a parking spot, they're rushing through the elevator or stairs, they're rushing into their doctor's office. And then a doctor walks in with a white coat that just triggers stress. So office pressures tend to be higher. And there's been a move towards more home monitoring even before the pandemic. So monitoring blood pressures at home can be very effective. And generally people are more comfortable, they feel calmer and they see better readings that are much more reflective of what's really going on. Yeah, that's, that's cool. That's, one of the things you talked about in your article was the bully pulpit. What, what did you mean by that? You know, um, we have such a dire need in this country to overall our nutrition practices, to make changes um, from a sick care system to really a proactive system. You know, I don't just want to take care of your diabetes once you develop it. Let me help you prevent it. Um, so really using the bully pulpit um, to, to make changes, to make significant policy changes in how our nutrition policy works and how our health policy works, you know, increasing um, the focus on prevention rather than just on treatment or surgery. While that's important, we cannot overlook prevention because we can use our money so much more effectively in prevention than we can once people develop these complications. So really we need a top-down approach to making these policies happen. We need support um, in many aspects of our political system so we can see meaningful changes. Great. Well, uh, we're almost out of time. So last question from Karen is, uh, apparently you're teaching a program, an uh, upcoming program. Would you like to talk about it? Yeah, I, I would. This is, I'm really excited. So this is a new program we're rolling out January 9th. It's called Reboot Your Health with Food. And the idea behind it is, you know, um, so many people are, are trying to manage chronic conditions, whether it's pre-diabetes or diabetes or pre-hypertension or high cholesterol levels or lower their risk for dementia. Maybe someone in their family has it and they wanna prevent themselves from developing it or lower their risk for heart disease or manage a healthy weight. And as we approach the new years, people often make resolutions, but then it's not always clear how to make them into successes. You know, it's hard to find the resources. So we really designed this 12 week program to make that happen. So the idea is we will have expert presenters with um, very valuable information, but the strength of the program is, is really in the participants. It's all of us coming together every week 
for an hour and 15 minutes on Saturdays and learning from one another. Because, you know, if there's something you're struggling with, I can guarantee there are probably a dozen other people that are in the same situation. And knowing that you're not alone, that others will support you and help you is just so fundamental to long-term success. So um, that's really the spirit about behind it. So knowledge, support, and accountability, doing this together to really create long-term success. So it's not just a short-term, but we want a long-term win-win solution. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for the wonderful work you're doing to make America healthier. Oh, and thank you. Thank you um, for all that you've done and for getting the word out. And I know in the last program um, we were doing, many of the participants said they were looking forward to your Thanksgiving recipes and cooking demos, and that's how they were going to get through the Thanksgiving challenges. So terrific. Well, great. Thank you so much. It was so nice to meet you, Dr. Raman. You too. Wonderful to see you. Thanks. And thanks all of you for watching another episode of Chef AJ Live. We have two more shows today at 2 p.m. Pacific time. Marcos Borges, Marco Borges, sorry, there's no S. Oops, hopefully didn't hear that. He is a trainer of Beyonce and he is plant-based and awesome. And at 5.30 p.m., Dr. Michael Greger. Take care, everyone. See you soon. Bye-bye.